Do you remember the first time that you were shocked by someone being wrong? Like someone that you thought couldn't be wrong. Maybe they're an expert in a field or just someone you really respected. Graduates, do you remember the first time you knew your parents could be wrong? I remember vividly the moment I realized my mom, my mother could be wrong. And just as a a note of caution, I need to be very careful how I tell this story because my mom is now a member of our church. (laughs) And I did ask permission to tell this story from her. So I did not, I would not get in trouble later today. My, My parents were actively involved in student ministry when I was growing up from My earliest memories, they were always chaperones on trips. And as a a young boy, I got to go along because my parents were going. And I remember uh, one year, my parents, along with their friends who were working in the student ministry, decided to take all of our students to see Carmen in concert. Anybody remember Carmen (laughs) up in here? Okay. It was a very exciting thing to go hear some of my my favorite hits, Satan Bite the Dust, The Champion, Slam. If you want to get a laugh, go watch some of these music videos on YouTube. But in the 80s and early 90s, it was primetime Christian entertainment. And so we were very excited. We, we showed up on one afternoon because the concert was at an arena about two hours away from where we lived in North Louisiana. We showed up, we piled in the vans, and we were on our way. And we weren't really worried about getting there. We stopped to, to eat supper on the way to make sure that we were filled and ready to enjoy the, the time of worship and entertainment there in the Carmen concert. And I remember vividly pulling up to the arena, tons of traffic around the arena and seeing the marquee sign. And on the marquee sign was a devastating declaration. Carmen concert sold out. Then I thought, that's no problem. We got tickets. Right, mom? We got tickets. No, Jared, we didn't get tickets. We thought we could buy them at the box office arena. Remember, this is before internet. This is before uh, any kind of advertisement like we have today. You heard it on the radio and you hoped that what was said on the radio was true when you showed up. And they didn't buy tickets because my mom didn't think that they needed to. She had no idea that this arena would be sold out for a Carmen concert, and yet it was. And I, I remember a you know, six, seven-year-old looking at my mom saying, but mom, you said, you said we were gonna be able to see Carmen. You said we were gonna drive this way and be able to listen to all my favorite songs. And she said to me, Jared, I'm sorry, I was wrong. What a gut punch. (laughs) Because if she could be wrong about Carmen, what else (laughs) could she be wrong about? Isn't it amazing how A moment like that sticks in your memory when someone you trust and have high respect for could be wrong about something. That's significant to a six-year-old. Something similar is happening in our text today in Matthew chapter 12. There's a lot more on the line. In our text, in this section of scripture, we will see the Jewish people put into a similar situation, a similar dilemma as they are forced to wrestle with the trustworthiness of the testimony of the Pharisees who are saying very different things about Jesus than Jesus is saying of himself. Now, before we progress, I need to make a couple of announcements or or 
uh, comments for my own sake. I'm not comparing my mother to the Pharisees. <laughs> she's a wonderful woman of God who's been a blessing to our family, and she's way more right than she is wrong. And she actually has a different recollection of the story than I do, but she's not going to come up and correct me. <laughs> but I think you see the parallel here. The Jewish people are being forced to wrestle with the possibility that people they trusted for their spiritual well-being, people they looked up to and how they walked faithfully after God had gotten it really, really wrong. And it's threatening their religious foundation. It's, it's threatening their spiritual foundation because they are seeing these works from Jesus. And they are hearing his teaching. It's unlike anything they have heard, but they are also hearing resistance from the religious authorities of their day. And they're forced to ask a really important question. Perhaps the most important question we will ever be asked. Who is right about Jesus? Who is right about Jesus? Because if Jesus is everything that he said he is, and we are everything the Bible says that we are, we want, we need to be right with him. We need to be right about him so that we can be right with him. Because the only way we can be right with God is to be right with Jesus. So today, church family, we're going to sit before this text in Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to hear some competing claims about who Jesus is. And it's my prayer today with the help of the Spirit that by the end, we will see who is right about Jesus. We will see that he is a Savior, a Messiah, worthy of our worship, worthy of our lives. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read the first 21 verses of this chapter, and here's what the Word of God says. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, to Jesus, look, your disciples are going and doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, 
and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. In this passage, Matthew clearly establishes the antagonistic relationship that developed between the Jewish leadership of that day and Jesus himself. At every turn, as Christ's ministry expands, as his influence grows, these Pharisees and those like-minded become threatened by him and work to discredit him, and not only discredit him, but destroy him. And this passage is just one interaction in the pages of Matthew's gospel that will play out over and over again, ultimately leading to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, in order for us to, to really wrestle with what Matthew is asking of us and the question that he's posing to his Jewish readership and us today, we need to consider all these claims. As these claims are, are competing to answer the question, who is Jesus? And and helping us to discern who is right about Jesus. So we need to look at what the Pharisees are saying about Christ. We need to look at what Jesus himself is saying about who he is in his ministry. And we need to consider the testimony of Scripture. So that on balance, with the help of the Spirit, we can see as the people of God who Jesus is in all of his glory. So, let's begin with the Pharisees. What are they saying about Jesus? What are, or what are they claiming about Jesus? Well, the claims of the Pharisees are really accusations. And they are tied to some rabbinic teaching about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest and worship for the people of God, established by God in creation, but assigned and the giving of the law. And we can see God's direction about the Sabbath, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the law is articulated. Let me just read for us from Deuteronomy chapter 5 what the Bible says about the Sabbath, beginning in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's in your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God gave the Sabbath day to his people as a day of rest and a day of worship to stop their working and reflect on the work of God. But as they began to try to observe this commandment, to, to honor the Lord in the keeping of the Sabbath, a question kind of began creeping up in the minds of God's people. What is work? What can we do and what can't we do on the Sabbath so that we can keep it in a way that honors the Lord. It's always helpful to have some guidelines so that we can maneuver in a way on a day like the Sabbath that honors the Lord. And so to help the people of God 
answer the question, what is work or what's acceptable to do on the Sabbath day, teachers of the law developed 39 rules that were written down in what's called the Mishnah or the oral tradition, the teaching of the Jewish people, 39 rules to help them discern how to honor the Lord on the Sabbath. And here's the important point for us. Breaking any of these Sabbath rules, any of them, the 39 written down by teachers of the law was considered to be trespassing, transgressing the Sabbath day, and that was a capital crime, according to Exodus 31, 14. But the question is, whose rules are the deciding factor? Are, are human traditions equal to the word of God? And if you transgress those human traditions, are you guilty of transgressing the law of God? And ultimately, have we even missed the heart of God in giving the law? So here come the disciples of Jesus, walking after him in the first part of our text. They're walking down the road. The road is right in the middle of these grain fields. And on the edges of these fields, the farmers have left some grain to be plucked for those who are poor or don't have food of their own. And on the Sabbath, they're walking and they begin to take some of this grain and eat it. Now, you were allowed to walk a little bit, a Sabbath day's walk. And there's no indication here that they've transgressed that law. But there is some issue with what they're doing in eating. They start picking grain, and they eat that grain. Here's how one commentator describes the transgression that the Pharisees would have seen. Plucking the grain was reaping. Rubbing it to separate the grain from the husks, which we learn about in Luke's gospel, was threshing. Blowing away the husks may well have been interpreted as winnowing. And for good measure, all of it may have been seen as preparation of food, which was also regarded as prohibited on the Sabbath. All food eaten on the Sabbath had to be prepared on the previous day. And so they're watching these disciples transgress their oral tradition. And they make a charge, a legal one, to their rabbi, who would have been culpable for the actions of his disciples. And they say, your disciples aren't keeping the Sabbath day holy. You know what that means. What do you have to say for yourself? Now, the second interaction that the Pharisees have with Jesus is found in verses 9 to 14, and it has to do with healing on the Sabbath. Jesus enters their Synagogue. That's an interesting way for Matthew to describe this synagogue. It just notates for us how antagonistic this relationship had become. He enters their synagogue, and there's a man who's suffering. He has a withered hand. It's a big deal in a society where you had to work with your hands for a living. And they ask him a question in order to entrap him, in order to add to the evidence that they're going to present to try to put this man to death. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now think about how perverse this question is. Is it lawful to help this man who cannot work, who is struggling? Is it lawful to help him on the Sabbath? The Mishnah, again, the oral law, the teaching of the, the rabbis, was specific here. One could heal on the Sabbath if it was a life-threatening situation. But this is not life-threatening, at least obviously so. So under the tradition of the oral law, Jesus should wait until the next day to heal him. 
If he did heal him, it would be illegal in their minds. But Jesus does heal the man because he's a compassionate king. He has compassion on this man like a sheep farmer would have when his sheep falls over a cliff and, or into a pit and needs help. He rescues this man from danger. And look at the reaction of the Pharisees in verse 14. Instead of being amazed at what they are seeing, instead of being marvel or marveling at the work of Christ, they are enraged. They leave their synagogue and begin to conspire against him to figure out a way to kill him. In their minds, Jesus and his disciples are defaming the Sabbath. They're profaning our tradition, and he's got to go. He's got to go. Now imagine what Matthew is asking of us as readers. Imagine the crisis of faith that's happening and those who are observing what's taking place between these Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus is violating our tradition. His disciples are not keeping the Sabbath in a way that we have been taught is right. Maybe something is wrong here. Are the Pharisees right about Jesus? Is he a threat? Now let's hold that and compare that to the claims of Jesus himself. Because amidst these claims of the Pharisees, Jesus makes some pretty remarkable claims about himself in response. He answers the initial charge against his disciples by appealing to two stories in the Old Testament. The first that Jesus mentions in verse 3 is a story about King David found in Samuel or 1 Samuel 21. In this story, David is fleeing Saul, who at this point is kind of crazy and trying to kill David. He's the current king of Israel. But David's hungry. He's running. And David goes into the tabernacle, apparently on the Sabbath, and asks for five loaves of the bread of presence, bread that was prepared as a sacrifice. And he ends up actually taking all 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, that would have been baked. And Jesus says David was not condemned in Scripture for this action. He was not condemned by God for taking this action. And the second story Christ mentions concerns the work of priests on the Sabbath. This is verse 5. In the book of Numbers, priests were expected to prepare offerings while in service to the temple, even on the Sabbath day. So that preparation would have been an exception to the Mishnah's teaching about prohibited work on the Sabbath. So here's the ultimate point that Jesus is making. Why, Pharisees, would you condemn my disciples for something that the Bible would not condemn them for? Moreover, there are clearly exceptions to your work when you're acting in service to God, when you're acting in service to the temple, and hear me, something greater than the temple is here. What a statement, guys. Verse 6, Jesus says, I am the greater temple. I am the greater meeting place between God and his people. I am the way that God dwells among his people. Something incredible is happening here. And if these disciples are serving this greater temple, then surely they fall under that exception. Moreover, Jesus makes another claim, a stunning claim in verse 8. The Son of Man, me, I am Lord of the Sabbath. My interpretation of the law, 
my teaching about the law. That's the final teaching. It's, it's what's authoritative. What I say is more important than your tradition because you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point of the Sabbath. You've missed the heart of God. The Sabbath was given by God as a gift to us, to the people of God, as a time for us to rest and to worship. It was a time for us to bask in the glory and grace of God, to remember his miraculous work of salvation. And instead, you have twisted it and perverted it into a means of condemnation. You're falling right back into the trap of Hosea 6.6, thinking that God is more concerned about sacrifice than mercy. Do you even know my Father? Do you even know what pleases him? Listen, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus says, verse 12. It's lawful to serve God on the Sabbath so long as you are doing it as an act of worship, so long as you are resting in the work of God. An important note here, listen, Jesus is not abolishing the Sabbath. He's simply clarifying its purpose and reminding us of what it ultimately is for because that day of rest is to point us to the greater rest that can only be found in Christ. That rest that he promised us at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Who's right? The Pharisees or Jesus? Well, to prove that point even more, Matthew brings in a star witness. The prophet Isaiah. The claims of scripture to reinforce Christ's claim that he is He is the promised Messiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses one to four. Here's what Isaiah wrote in some of these servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. Verses one to four of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the whole earth and the coastlands for the law. So think about this. Jesus, or Matthew looks back and the the teaching of Jesus, and he remembers Jesus quoting this passage from Isaiah, and he places it right after this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees to prove an important point, to help us understand something he's been arguing throughout his gospel, that Jesus is exactly who God promised. He is God's chosen servant. What did Isaiah say about God's chosen servant? He will have the spirit of the Lord upon him. And remember, we saw the spirit of the Lord descend upon Jesus like a dove in Matthew chapter three in his baptism. This chosen servant will be a silent servant. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not resist the death that he knows he has come to die. And so when he knows and understands that the Pharisees are coming after him to destroy him, he withdraws. 
and challenges people not to, de- not to declare that he is the Christ yet because his time has not yet arrived. And here's a wonderful statement about this chosen servant. He will not crush the weak. If you're bruised, Jesus will not break you. If, if you're smoldering wick, thinking that your light's about to go out, he will not be the cause of of quenching you. Rather, those who are weak, this promised king, this chosen servant, he will defend them and uphold them in their weakness. And this coming king, this chosen servant, will offer hope to the nations, not just one people, but all peoples. Friends, haven't we seen this in Christ? Haven't we seen this testimony over and over again about who Jesus is? Who is right about Jesus? Who will we believe? Whom will we believe? We hear these claims. We see these responses. Who's right? Friends, will we believe the claims of Jesus or the charge of the Pharisees? Let me ask you, who do you think has a better grasp on the heart of God for the Sabbath? Who do you think actually knows what brings about rest for our souls? Who, who do you think can actually bring you to the place where you can find eternal rest and peace with God? Who between Jesus and the Pharisees is creating more burden, a burden that we cannot bear? Listen, as a sheep who often falls in a pit, I know who my heart's drawn to. I know who I'm longing for. Listen, I've tried. I've, I've worked to try to please God, only to find myself more and more weary because there's nothing I can do to make up the gap that exists between me and God. But here's where I found rest. When my heart was arrested by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I realized that I didn't have to make up that gap because God made it up for me, because he sent his son He sent his son to live the life that I could not live, to to die the death that I deserved so that I could have life eternal and abundant in him. Freedom. And the, the trust that if I'm in the son, I am pleasing to the father because he perfectly pleased the father. The Pharisees do not know what pleases God, but Jesus does. And he is the only one who can lead us to true rest. In your heart, in your spirit, do you believe that? That Jesus is the only place to find rest. Because there may be some people competing, making other claims, that you gotta do this to please God or you gotta be this way to please God. The only place that you can please God is in Christ. Amen. Place your faith and trust in him. Who will we believe? Will we believe the teaching of Jesus or the tradition of the Pharisees? Who is the one that clearly reveals God? Who should shape our understanding of who God is? I think there's a warning for us here, church. We don't like to admit it. But there are times, especially in established churches, where we can begin to develop a heart of the Pharisee. Where we can become consumed with tradition in a bad way. And remember, friends, 
me just offer you this, this warning today. The way we have always done it can become the enemy of what God has said. Let me just say it again. The way we have always done it can become the enemy of what God has said. Listen, not all tradition is bad. Some tradition is helpful because it's, it's given to us to help us express our faith and to help us as a people know alongside Scripture, as a servant of Scripture, to please God. But the danger is that as we embrace tradition, we begin to hold it on the same level as the Word of God. And we, become, we begin to hold people accountable to our tradition in the same way we hold them accountable to the word of God, and that is dangerous. That's the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of God. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I was uh, on, a, on staff at a church in Baton Rouge. Again, that's where Louisiana State University is, in case anybody <laughs> wants to go there one day. And uh, I was talking with one of my friends in the church, and she was talking about how the Lord was doing an incredible work in her father's life, but he had not yet found a church. And I said, well, why don't you invite your dad to come here? And, he, and she said, I have. But he doesn't feel like he can come to this church because he doesn't have the right clothes. And so he doesn't feel like he can fit in at our church or come to our church because he doesn't feel worthy to come in because of what he wears. And I remember being broken over that. Because at some point, somewhere along the way, someone said, hey, listen, Here's a good thing for you to do. God deserves our best. So when you come to church, you give him your best. Wear your best. Give everything you have to the Lord. But there also wasn't any qualification that, hey, the best for people may be different than your best. There's, there's different levels. And I don't want ever what someone wears to cause them from not being able to participate in what the Lord is doing among his people. Moreover, what's dangerous in our own hearts is that we would dismiss the work of God in someone's life because of what they are wearing to say, no, I'm not going to embrace that or invite that into this church because you're not wearing the right clothes. Isn't that silly? But we do that. I can't listen to that guy. He's not wearing the right stuff. I can't worship beside that guy. He's not wearing the right stuff. Again, it was well-intended to help us try to honor the Lord, but it became something more. My, my favorite um, evidence of this is dancing among Baptist churches, right? It's something we can laugh about. I grew up at, I, mean, I went to a school where we had banquets, not dances, because at some point, someone said, hey, in order to help you guys, help you students not do anything foolish and do something that would dishonor the Lord, we're going to say dancing is not wise. And so don't dance. Don't do any of that crazy stuff, okay? Because that's gonna help you make wise decisions. And then you hear somebody dancing and you think, well, they're not walking with the Lord. Because somewhere, a suggestion, a help on how to please the Lord became law. And if you dance at all, you become displeasing to the Lord. But then you go in the Bible and you read about David. Dancing before the Lord. Okay, well, something's not right here. What do we do in those moments when our tradition begins to conflict with the word of God? Who gets to decide the heart of God? 
God does. And we got to be careful, church family, that our traditions don't rise to a place where we dismiss the work of God for the sake of holding on to what we want. Listen, I pray this would not be true of Bailey Baptist Church, when we would miss the work of God just because it didn't happen the way we wanted it to. We've got to release those things. And that leads us to the third question we need to ask all the time. Will we believe the word of God or the witness of the Pharisees? When something is not adding up, when someone we respect gets something wrong, what will be our response? Who do we go to? Well, this master teacher said this. Or do we go to the word of God? What does God's word say? Listen, our traditions can be faulty. We get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes they're very cultural. And our culture changes. We need to make sure that whatever we do, whatever we hold to, is always hold, held with open hands before the word of God to be shaped by the word of God. So that our hearts are right. Because if, if we get into tradition other than the word, it's only going to reinforce brokenness, not release us in freedom. Listen, some of these traditions were developed because here was the question. I want to know how far is too far. I want to know how much is too much. And I want to challenge you today, to, and students, this is really important because we do this in student ministry a lot. Just give me the boundaries. Give me the boundaries. What can I do in a relationship? What can I watch? What can I, where, where can I go? What's the boundary? What's the limit? And I want to challenge us this morning. That's the wrong question because the focus is how much can I get away with? It's how much can I please myself and still be okay with God? That's the wrong question. The question we should always ask is what pleases God? And the only way we know that is the word. The only way we know that is through Christ and the witness of Christ given to us in the scripture. Our tradition is not equal to God's word. It must be shaped by God's word. Otherwise, we're only reinforcing among ourselves brokenness and we will miss the work of God. Amen. Let's not be like the Pharisees. Let's not believe their claims about Jesus because they are wrong about him. If you look at the evidence, if you see what what Christ is proclaiming alongside the testimony of the word of God, you will see that Jesus is everything God promised. That what he said is right. And if you want to be right with God, you need to be right with Jesus. There's no other way. Church family, hear this testimony from our scripture today. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. As we saw last week, he is our righteous judge, the perfect revelation of God as the Son. He is our Sabbath rest. He is the incarnate and authoritative Word of God. Believe him. Believe the witness of Scripture about him because eternity is at stake. Wherever you are, do you bow your heads? Spend some time asking the Lord to help you know how to respond today. The word of God demands a response. We want the spirit to help us respond in a way that honors the Lord. 
Do you believe in Jesus? There are a lot of people who make claims about Christ. He's a good man. He's a famous prophet. He's a great teacher. But they dismiss a lot of who he is. Don't dismiss Jesus today. Believe, believe that he is the son of God. Believe that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. If you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to be saved, we would love for you to do that today. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here at the front. We'd love to help guide you through a response if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you in that way, to evidencing belief in Jesus through repentance and belief. For those of us who are in Christ, would you ask the Lord to help guard our hearts against traditionalism? Again, not all tradition's bad, it's helpful sometimes. But when we begin to elevate tradition, to an equal place with what God has said in Scripture. That's a dangerous thing. Let's hold people accountable to what God has said, not what we have said. Let's ask him to help us make sure that we don't create unnecessary burden or we don't dismiss his work because it didn't happen in a way that we expected. And let's rejoice in the truth that if we are in Christ, we can enter into true Sabbath rest. There's coming a day when for eternity we will bask in the glory of Jesus. When we will truly rest in joy and worship. All because of what God has done for us in Christ. Father, would you help us? as a people respond faithfully to your word. May we be more like your son because of our time together today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads. Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.